So let me ask you guys a little history question here. Does anybody know the Latin phrase that is on the uh, seal of the United States? There we go. We got some people. We pluribus union. Does anybody know what that means? Ooh, got you stumped a little bit there. Oh, we got a, got a taker up here. Ding, 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 ding. Out of many, one. Whenever the, it was an act in 1782 by an act of Congress that they put this Latin phrase on the seal of the United States. And the idea behind it was that it was people coming from many nations that had settled into the United States. You had 13 colonies who were very unique, very distinct, that were coming together to make one. The founders of our country understood the power in unity, the strength in unity. You know, even the company that I work for, one of the, the five pillars that we have is something they call one team. One team, we're, we're together, moving together in unity. And today, as we look in with Paul, as we're walking through this book of Galatians, he is going to really hit home on this idea of unity, that there is freedom in unity. Not only is there freedom in unity, but there's strength in unity. And Paul, he senses a division in the church. He knows that as soon as there is a division, that Satan's going to get his little self in there and divide and eventually distract from the mission. And he is going to warn the church of that. So let's, let's start reading here. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So here's what happened. Let me give you a little background to the story of our text here this morning. Peter had a dream in Acts chapter 10 where God enrolled this gigantic sheet, and in it were all kinds of unclean animals that he was telling Peter that he could now eat. Animals like rabbits and pigs and shrimp. And the voice of God commanded Peter to go and eat. Because if you remember, in Old Testament Judaism, they couldn't eat unclean animals. You know, even today, you know, if uh, you know, Jews today have to eat what's called a kosher meal. But God was telling them, God was telling Peter, go ahead, what I have made clean, it's no longer, you no longer have to follow those laws. And I, you know, people call this Peter's pig in a blanket dream. And at first Peter resists, but God shows him that Jesus' death had made all foods clean for the believer. And ritual cleanliness was no, no longer had anything to do with being close to God. That was no longer a part of it. And so Peter starts to eat with the Gentiles. He, he sees the vision, he gets it. And you know he, he starts eating with the Gentiles, and Peter starts understanding that once you taste how good bacon is, you never want to go back. Because once you have bacon, it's just so, so good. So Peter's out there every night with the Gentiles. He's eating high on the hog, literally. But when some Jews from Jerusalem show up, Peter withdraws. 
And he goes back to his old ways of not eating with the Gentiles, lest they shake some sort of unclean dust out on him. So you can see this division that's happening in the church between the Jewish believers and those non-Jewish or Gentile believers that's happening just on this idea here of what should we eat? You know, think about that. You know, we face crazy different things in our world today, but they were divided over what should we eat. All right, let's keep reading in the passage here. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You know, what I love about this is, you know, going back to verse 11, Paul says that I oppose Peter to his face. Man, can you imagine that? Like the two pillars of the faith, Peter and Paul, they're like having it out. It's like, it's like some HBO special or something. Like they're going at it with each other here, d- discussing this. And so what happened here is the Jewish Christians began insisting that the Gentile Christians adopt their culture if they were going to be real Christians. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not how it is. That's not the gospel. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said it to Cephas before them all. Now this had to be something to watch, right? Can you imagine being there, this early church, watching them try to figure all of these things out? You know, you think about how hard it's been, you know, for us as pastors to just try to navigate through this craziness of coronavirus. We've never had to navigate a pandemic. Imagine how crazy it was for them in the first century, Christianity being brand new, to try to figure all of that out. We think we have it hard. Then think about how hard it was for the church back then. It had to be awkward. But it's this confrontation that sometimes needs to happen in the church. Finishing up verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Imagine this. Paul is explaining the gospel to Peter. Think about that for just a moment. Paul is explaining the gospel to Peter. These two anchors of the church. If there's not an example of that we as believers need the gospel preached to us, I need the gospel preached to me day after day after day because we get distracted from it, that even Peter needed a reality check about what the true gospel is. He's saying, Peter, at its core, this is a gospel issue. The gospel is that we are justified not because of something about us or something we eat or something we do or don't do, but because we accept Christ's righteousness as our own. When we receive Christ's righteousness by faith, we are justified, declared guiltless and perfect in God's sight. We are completely accepted. We are beloved sons and daughters of God. That is the basis of our acceptance. And when we really, really embrace that, it tears down any sense of superiority that we may have. 
There's no superior culture. The Jewish, the Jewish people weren't superior to the Gentiles. We are unified under this banner of being children of God. Let's keep reading verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. One of the greatest verses in all of Scripture is this next verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And we've, we've titled this series Set Free because the book of Galatians is about the freedom that the gospel alone provides. We are all searching for freedom in this life, but it's only the gospel that provides that freedom. In this story, I think Paul illustrates two separate types of freedom that we experience when we trust in Christ. You know, I think the first is the most significant, so we're going to park and spend some time here. We have this freedom to unite. You know, Paul explains that much of our interpersonal strife, it goes back to a failure to understand and apply the gospel. This freedom to unite. He said Peter was deviating from the truth of the gospel. Paul is showing us that there are a lot of barriers that we put up among ourselves because we try to justify ourselves, to declare ourselves righteous and good because of something that we have done. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. Jews did this through the law. They had this whole system of things that distinguished them from the world. The Old Testament alone contains 613 laws. In addition to those, Jews made what they would call a hedge around the law. Essentially rules to keep them from even approaching to break those rules. There were thousands of them. Can you imagine how restricting that would be? Like how like crushing and debilitating that would be to think about trying to keep all of those, those laws. And just the, the, the opposite of what that would be in terms of freedom. These things separated them from others. And if you did them, they would say you were accepted by God. And if you didn't, you're rejected. And having a list of things that if you do them, you're accepted is not unique to Judaism, of course. All religions have this type of list. These type of things that you have to keep to reach that next level of nirvana or, or whatever it might be, whatever religion that you are following. And you might say, you know, that's why I hate religion. That's why I've always hated religion. It makes people self-righteous and competitive. And I would tell you that all people, not just religious people, do this. Charles Spurgeon, you guys hear me quote him all the time, the 19th century pastor, he said there's three main dividers in his society. This was 19th century England, and as, as I read these, these are so applicable today. It just shows you how the same things, just history just repeats itself over and over again. He said there's the pride of race, the pride of face and place, and the pride of grace. 
First of all, he says, the pride of race. For many, their ethnic identity becomes a way of distinguishing themselves above others. So they take pride in their Americanness, their southernness, their Asianness, their whiteness, their blackness, their Indian culture, their Hispanic culture, or whatever. And a racial distinctive makes them who they are and it forms their identity. Now, hear me when I say this our cultures are beautiful, beautiful things created by God like a many faceted diamond to reflect His glory. God uses all of the cultures of the world to praise his name, to bring him glory. But when they become our primary, distinguishable identities, they cause division. You become really proud and protective and defensive of your culture because your culture gives you a sense of identity and it sets you apart. It's part of getting to the point of what justifies you. There's only one race of people that we see in the Bible. And that's the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, the human race. You know, I, I so bad when I, when I ask those surveys, those things you fill out, and it says, what race are you? I just want to say human. Because there's only one true race of people, and that's the human race. We have one core problem, and that is sin. We have one hope, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses all of us. All people from all cultures. Paul says in Romans 10, there is no difference in Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all who call upon him for grace. Where is boasting then? Where is their superiority? There is none. They're all the same. After my identity in Christ, Paul says, all the rest of these divining, defining characteristics are garbage compared to the worth of our identity in Christ. We have one foremost thing that we should identify as as being followers of Jesus Christ, as being children of God. When we become Christians, our cultural distinctives, they don't go away, but they should take a far back seat to what it means to become a follower of Jesus. God is not telling Jews, Jewish people to become Gentiles in this passage. He's not telling the, the Gentiles to become Jews He's not telling Puerto Ricans to be Chinese or Africans to be Europeans. He's telling people to be kingdom of God people. Remember, I've used this analogy so many times. We are, our church is like an embassy in this world, an embassy of the kingdom of God, and we are ambassadors inside this embassy. We meet together in this embassy on Sunday mornings, and we go out to the world as ambassadors with our identity as children of God to tell this lost world about the hope of the gospel. And we should never let our other cultural distinctives take a front seat to our identity as children of God. And so when we experience racial division, it's almost always at the root as our ethnic identity has become too large. Our identity in Christ has to become greater, much greater than any other identity that we possess. And at the core of our divisions, and this is the second identity that we're going to look at here, has, has, has become too large in our eyes. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I became all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He's saying, I'm setting aside my Jewishness 
Remember, Paul says, I was a Jew of the Jews. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, which was like the number one teacher in Judaism. He goes, I knew it better than all of you guys. But he said, I'm setting aside my Jewishness so I can reach the Greeks, the Gentiles, and all of the other people around the Mediterranean world of the Roman Empire. Because my Jewishness took a back seat to my identity in Christ. So we have the pride of race. We have the pride of face and place. We think some personal accomplishment or characteristic sets us apart and justifies us before others. Sometimes we tend to see people in these categories of successful and unsuccessful, intelligent and dull, beautiful and ugly, fit and fat, rich and poor. And we look down on those who are less than we are in these areas and we feel intimidated by those who are more so than us in those areas. When we do that, friend, we have lost sight of the gospel. We forget the true application of the gospel. First, do you realize how little of your talents that you can actually take credit for? Do you realize how little of your talents you can actually take credit for? Your parents gave you genes and God gave you the health and the opportunity to pursue them. Do you think that you would have the opportunities that you have today if you were born as an orphan in Bangladesh? No. It was only by God's grace that you were given the opportunity to be born in this free country to the parents that you were given, to the job that you have, to the education that you receive, to the roof that you have over your head, to the food that you put in your mouth every day is only by God's grace. So pride about all of that is just ridiculous. So the pride of race makes no sense. The pride of face and place makes no sense. And, and maybe worst of all, Spurgeon says, is the pride of grace. This is a pride that comes from having lived a moral or religious life or having avoided some sort of shameful sins or mistakes. You feel this sense of pride sometimes because you've lived this, maybe you lived this perfect and, and holy life. You've never been to prison or you've never been fired from a job or you've never taken drugs, or you've come from a good family. And so you feel this sense of distinction, this sense of superiority over others who have gone through all of those things. And when you have that superiority feeling, you then again are forgetting the true gospel. In Christ, there are no good and bad people, winners or losers, people who have it together, or people who are dysfunctional. There's only those who are dead. We are, Ephesians, Paul will say, we are all dead in our sins. Rebels, without God, without hope in this world, that God saves us is a sheer act of his grace alone. And just because God in his grace kept you from some of the worst fruition of your sins doesn't mean that you were made something different, that, that other people who have gone down that route are any different than what you are. The gospel that we are justified by faith alone in Christ's finished work, it destroys all of that pride. It destroys all of it. So in Christ, we have this freedom to unite because we realize that everything is based on God's grace. Everything. We have this freedom to unite because we have 
the identity all the same. We are all image bearers of God and we have been redeemed by the shed blood of the Lamb. We have the privilege to be called sons and daughters of God. Citizens not of this world, but citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what we all are in this room that have followed Christ. So we have the ability to have freedom in that unity. We also have, Paul says, I I think in this passage, freedom from insecurity. One of the most famous verses that we wrote there, or that we read, I pointed out, was Galatians 2.20. It is Paul's ultimate statement of his identity. And it comes out of his discussion in this conflict. Let me read it again to you. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? It's Christ who lives in me now. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ in me. In Christ Christ in me. That's the essence of who I am, crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That means not only do I have a new identity, I'm in Christ. His power is in me. Christ in me. If you get nothing else out of this message today, let this phrase marinate on your mind all week. Christ in me. That is my identity. Many of you know you stand accepted by the merits of Christ, but you don't realize you live righteously by the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is you and Christ and Christ and you. The Christian identity is I am in Christ and he is in me. I am in Christ And he is in me. You see, when God sees you now, he sees Christ. Why? Because when we accept Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see all of our past wickedness, all of our past failures. He sees Christ. That's why he asked you to live such a miraculous life. He's not betting on you. He's betting on Christ in you. Only one person is capable of living the Christian life, and that is Christ in you. You see, you may feel abandoned by a loved one, a spouse, a parent, but in Christ, you are loved by God. You may feel condemned for your your past sins, the past things that you're just ashamed of, that you want no one to know about, but in Christ, you are spotless and above reproach. You may feel down on your luck, but in Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. All the promises of God are yes in Christ And they work together for your good. You may feel neglected by others, but in Christ, you are chosen by God. This morning, you may have come this morning to church beat down 
and defeated because you gave in to temptation multiple times this week. But in Christ, you have died to sin's power and Christ now lives through you to go back out and conquer temptation this week. You may feel like you aren't making a difference in life. That your life is just an account for nothing. But in Christ, you are raised with Jesus and seated in the heavenly places. And he has blessed you in this world to be a blessing to the world around you. You may feel broken this morning, but don't forget, in Christ, you have been made complete. In Christ, you are adopted to his family. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God. That's who you are. So stop acting like someone else. Because we have Christ in me. The gospel frees you from the insecurities you feel in life because Christ in you, you can live in gospel freedom. Let's pray.